My name is Elizabeth Howard. Welcome to the Short Fuse podcast and our conversations around the arts, music, dance, literature, theater, and film, and those issues that we believe are influencing the arts. Short Fuse is produced by the Arts Fuse, the online journal that brings you arts, commentary, and criticism. We engage, we explore, we ask questions. Welcome. For a lens on the literary landscape, one looks to the arts and literary publicist Lauren Saran. For 14 years, the online journal The Arts Fuse, producer of the Short Fuse podcast, has been reviewing and recognizing those performances, books, and films where many arts publications fear to tread. Through my conversations with Lauren, we are given an insight into independent publishing, indie bookstores, festivals, and the meaning of literary awards as she guides us into how to invite readers into a brightly lit room as we emerge into a reimagined world. Lauren, it's so nice to be in conversation with you today about one of my favorite subjects, books. So as a writer and an arts and literary publicist who's been working internationally, perhaps you can just tell us a little bit about how you got into this world. Yeah, absolutely. And it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I was a really early reader. I was a person who loved books and read constantly and took every opportunity to read new ones. I was always at the library, but I did not grow up in a world where that was considered a job or a career. It was just something that I did because I loved it. And so when I went to college, I majored in finance first and then industrial and labor relations at Cornell University, which is where my degree is from. And when I got out of school, my first job was in the media relations department at the AFL-CIO in Washington, D.C. And that's where I learned the basics of public relations. And I often think that I was really probably one of the last people who got trained in like a very traditional way of doing publicity for newspapers for national television, for broadcast, for press conferences on Capitol Hill, of which I organized quite a few. And at the same time, the internet was becoming a feature of life, but it wasn't something that existed when I was a child or even when I was in college. But when I got out of school, it was starting to become something that was impacting the workplace. But I remember very clearly that that first year, email was kind of a novelty. It was something that people answered like a letter three to four days after they received it and in a very long and considered <laughs> thoughtful way. And if you needed to get in touch with someone, obviously you would call them or send them a fax. So I started immediately to become interested in the internet because as a young publicist, you know, I didn't have the most prestigious projects. And so I didn't have the best relationships or connections, but I saw a way that I could go online and I could connect with communities of people that were organizing themselves around the things that interested them and that my work could have a real impact. So it was about, you know, day-to-day success in the office, but it was also about this entirely new world opening up. So I got recruited to come and work in New York for a big union here. And I did that for a year and I decided that I really wanted to work in the cultural world. So I got a job doing the publicity for the lectures and the dance programs at the 92nd Street Y when I was about 23. I was very, very interested in the internet. It was not interesting to any of the places that I had worked. It was considered a kind of niche interest. I was told a lot that, you know, it was a passing fad and that I was spending my time on the wrong things. 
And I was really, you know, imaginative and headstrong. And even now I realize quite an original thinker, very bold. I saw the world going in a different direction. And so I had a reading series on the side with some friends. It was about feminist literature and feminist writers. And it was in a bar. And I remember saying to them at a certain point, like people come and they have fun because I do the publicity and I get all the listings. But I don't think they really realize that we have a political agenda. So, you know, we should really start a blog. And my friends were like, what's a blog? (laughs) And I was like, let's just try it. And overnight, you know, everything changed. Like suddenly we were part of a, a literary conversation that was really meaningful. And people that we wanted to talk to were listening to us and responding. And so after that, I really never looked back. I left the 92nd Street Y. I had a boyfriend who was a very prominent media critic at the Columbia Journalism Review, and he had a book coming out. And I remember talking to him over dinner, and he was telling me that they really weren't sure what to do about publicity. And I was like, oh, well, that's like really easy. You know, like I knew how to run a big media campaign. And I said, you know, a book is not any different than a political campaign. Here's what you do. And here's the TV that you want to get. And here's what you really need to make sure happens because you have to be successful very quickly in books or the world moves on much like politics. And so he went to the meeting with the publisher and he came home just completely dejected. And he said, you know, they'd said that they didn't pay a lot of money for it and they weren't really going to do a lot to promote it. And anything that we get is really up to us. And I having come from an activist uh, professional background, was actually appalled by that. And I just thought that's not fair. Like you're 26 years old and you're going to fail and they're going to blame you and it's not your fault. So I said, I'm kind of between projects right now. Why don't I do the publicity for you? And so I got him on The Daily Show, which at the time was, you know, watched by everyone we knew. And it became an overnight New York Times bestseller. And after that, I really didn't look back. I started getting referrals from different writers. And I started working on books because that's what I like to read. And that's what I was interested in. And I thought, well, it's not that different than what I know how to do, which is public relations. It's 20 years later now. But yeah, I've never worked for a publishing house. I've been offered some really nice jobs. But um, I always felt that at a certain point, people were very charmed by my irreverent and um, (laughs) different outlook and that it would be really fun for a couple of months, but that eventually they would want me to do things the usual way. And I'm just not that kind of person. Just listening to you again, I've known you for years. It seems that you're still such an innovator and publishers still aren't necessarily understanding the necessity of putting funds and time behind promoting books? Well, I think they're operating in a really different environment. I mean, the one thing that I say to writers all the time, especially when we start working together, is that, uh, you know, there's two kinds of people that I work with. There's the people that are really happy with everything that they can achieve, that they can kind of pull together and They really think a lot about their assets and their strategy and their community and and what they want to do as a kind of progressive goal. So you're just adding on, you know, a little bit incrementally more each time. And then when the book is published, because ideally you're thinking about this before, you know, you're really using the publisher's resources and attention to amplify that. And then you go back to your life and you continue doing what you're doing. Those people are very happy. There are three or four of them living in the world at any one time. And everyone else, I think, has this kind of expectation and this wish and this hope that is not unfounded 
that a publisher is going to wave a magic wand over them on their publication day, that they're going to be on the cover of their favorite magazine. And that after that, it's just going to be one talk show after another until they lose their voice. But I think the reality is the media world has changed so much in good ways. Like there's a lot more room for a lot more voices now. And I think overall, that's a very positive thing. There are many more books published. The growth of internet and digital media made it possible for people to publish books who didn't have access to the means of production before. So in many ways, it's a more democratic exercise. But at the same time, you know, we see increasing corporate consolidation and like you do see people who have the experience that their book is sort of treated in a perfunctory way, given no serious attention, and then like immediately everyone moves on to the next thing. So there's a wide range of experiences. I would like to see publishers spend more time kind of advertising and marketing because I feel that the first 20 years that I worked on books, I had very sophisticated, nuanced layers of explanation for how people read and why they read and the complex, intricate relationship between critics and so on and so on. And then I went and lived in Italy for a year and I barely looked at social media at all. And when I came back here, I went back to work. The first thing I thought was like, no, people read the books their friends are reading. That's it. There's nothing else. It's not complicated. There's nothing opaque about it. Either your friends have heard of a book and they tell you about it or they don't. So I think the crisis in publishing from my perspective is just that most people aren't hearing about books. And there's a lot of explanations for that. So I consider part of my work uh, to tell as many people as possible, you know, not just influencers, not just gatekeepers, but, you know, everybody in the world that would appreciate a good read is pretty high on my list. The authors you represent, Lauren, are people who we haven't necessarily heard of. And two of the most beautiful books I've read this year are by authors you represent, Arisa White, Who's Your Daddy? and Allegiance by Darian Shuji. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about those books. Yeah, Arisa White's book, Who's Your Daddy? is published by a Brooklyn publisher called Augury Books. And it's a really incredible book in every sense. But what I particularly love about it is the structure part memoir, it's part poetry. In some ways, you know, I call it a poetic memoir, but it defies marketing categories, which is one of the reasons that I think this is such a standout book for an independent publisher and for adventurous readers, because it's a format that I see people really respond to. They really like the way that Who's Your Daddy plays with time and storytelling as it investigates the relationship between the protagonist and her father. And, you know, her sort of reckoning with the world. But it's not necessarily something that you're going to see a lot of other writers doing. Like it's absolutely, you know, the product of her creativity and her ingenuity. And I think it's really worth seeking out. Uh, With Darian Shuji, she wrote several very successful books of women's fiction that came out on major publishers. And then at age 50, she decided to go back to school and get her master's degree in poetry. And she won a chapbook fellowship from the Poetry Society of America to write a book of poems that is about excavating the women's voices in her Chinese maternal line that had been lost to history. So to me, uh, one thing that I find interesting about both of those books is the way that they are, you know, inventive, imaginative, and really very much in tune with, I think, something that's really important in our culture right now, which is this idea of lineage and connection And, you know, just the sense that we're all interconnected and that there's something that informs the way that we live, but that we also sometimes have a reckoning with or that we see differently generation by generation. And um, I think both of those books are actually in conversation with each other in a really interesting way as well. 
I hope they're read together, certainly. And do you find, Lauren, that the influences on fiction, nature, poetry, does start with independent publishers who are willing to publish some of these books that others might not? Well, I mean, I think that the kind of ability of independent publishers to take a risk is their strongest asset. Often when you publish with a smaller house, they may not have resources, they may not have the relationships to open the doors of big reviewers, but the reality is someone there feels a tremendous passion for the book. And I remember very early in my career, you know, a writer who'd had a lot of success at a lot of different major media institutions told me that he really liked his fiction to come out with an independent press because, you know, his best hope at a big publisher was to be the hot book for a week or maybe a month. But he knew that if he achieved a certain level of review coverage and a certain level of attention, he could be the big book of the year for a a small publisher, which would keep selling the book and would keep promoting it and wouldn't treat it as though it had an expiration date. So I think people get into independent publishing Because in some sense, they really want to have those kind of old-fashioned relationships that are based on real commitment and a sense that the artist grows and matures over time and that there are readers that want to travel on that journey with you too. Recently, your friend, publisher Giancarlo DiParpano died, and you've written a lovely piece that's going to be published in the Northwest Review. And he was someone who really understood the importance of seeking out, say, bohemian authors. Yeah, I mean, the amazing thing about Giancarlo is that he really championed the writers that he loved. And that was one of the reasons that I found it so refreshing to work with him. I remember not long ago, a writer confided in me that someone that they knew had recently gotten a bad review. And as a result, their publisher had pulled all of the promotion and had scaled back their tour and that there were kind of real consequences for that. And it was... Very shortly after Giancarlo had passed away, and I remember thinking he was really the opposite of that. Like if you wrote a book with him and a reviewer didn't get it, as far as he was concerned, like the problem was with the reviewer. Like he was just 100% dedicated to the people that he published. And he had a real long-term view of things that I really liked and admired. But the thing that I respected so much was that he just had great, great personal integrity, you know, about what he intended to do in terms of bringing the books that he liked into the broader world. Like there was no sense for him that there was a trend that was preventing his re- his writers from being read or that there was some sort of, you know, there was nothing in the external world that could prevent him from falling in love. What about criticism? And since many local newspapers are gone and magazines and things are online and a lot of them are dropping a lot of their arts and culture sections and aren't really putting that much effort into criticism. How has that affected the literary world? I mean, I think one of the hardest things is that people don't really realize that like in order for you to make a purchasing decision, for you to feel that all of your friends are reading a book, you know, you have to see the book mentioned 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 times. So I think that this kind of like intense burden that falls on five or six book reviews to come out is not really as broad or holistic a strategy as there needs to be for the success of a book. I think that there's a really interesting interrelated kind of ecosystem that has to happen for a book to be successful that can include, but is not limited to, you know, social media presence, engagement with the community, 
book clubs, libraries, different kinds of marketing. But I think that paid promotion is a really big part of it. And I feel that that has dropped off more than criticism in some ways. Like I hardly ever see you know, books really advertised and marketed in a kind of robust way, the way that I see other consumer goods in the course of my daily life. I mostly experience books in the publishing industry as being marketed to people who already read books. And I think that, you know, that's a self-limiting prophecy. And furthermore, it ends up making you feel like you have to be a specialist to appreciate literature. And I don't think that's the case at all. I think it's an, an art form that's open to everyone. Do you think that some of the city reading groups, the New York Times has a book club that's open to people, the New York Public Library has been doing citywide readings. Do you think that's done anything at all to encourage reading, particularly among those people who aren't readers necessarily? I think people crave it. I mean, I think people find their way to books. Certainly we've seen that in terms of the way that book sales have been booming, you know, in the past years, people have been at home and and looking for something new. For me, like, it's just the idea that the supply, you know, really exceeds the sort of levers that we have for discovery in our culture. And I think that, yeah, anything people do that brings a lot of books in front of a lot of people is a really, really good thing because I have friends who, you know, ask me what to read because they just don't know, you know, they might read one publication or two publications, but, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that those publications are going to be reviewing the kind of books that you like to read. For instance, a lot of the small press books that I work on are never, you know, reviewed by large mainstream publications, but people hear about them nonetheless. It's not a problem that I can necessarily solve, but I think that it's often really helpful to think about the widest possible distribution strategy for a book, even if you know that the resources are only going to get you so far, because I think that when people are disappointed, it's because they've taken too narrow a view of what success means to them. I know before you left for Italy and before the pandemic, you were working with independent bookstores across the country, Lauren. You were often traveling yourself, planning programs for your authors and putting programming together. I know it's been very difficult for independent bookstores during this time, and yet people have been reading and they have been buying books. How do you think they'll reimagine themselves when things open up again? Well, I think one of the things that's been really nice is that the kind of emergence of digital events has made it possible to reach really broad people. So people who, for instance, it's not just not living in the town, but maybe you have some reason that you're not able to leave the house or you're not able to uh, join a public event. And so suddenly the fact that a person can participate from home I think is a really good thing. I think it's been challenging for bookstores to monetize those events with sales because sometimes people tune in, sometimes they buy the book elsewhere. I think that we'll probably need to see a kind of hybrid model in the future. I would love to see bookstores, you know, do events in person when it's safe and it's possible, but also continue to have some virtual events that are going to let them, you know, be a part of a, a broader conversation that I think is really interesting and really fascinating and lets you bring in, you know, Lots of different perspectives in a way that I think is only possible with that kind of technology. 
but I think that people also are feeling Zoom fatigue, like I know that I am. And there was this kind of pressure uh, that I was feeling a few months ago where people still wanted to have like a tour with 10 events that were all on Zoom. And I just had to say like, I don't believe in replicating, you know, reality in a virtual way that's not the same. I think if you want to do a Zoom event that feels like a real conversation, that's going to bring in a lot of people, that's going to get attention for the bookstore, that's great. But I don't believe in doing, you know, 10 events for five people. I think that's going to be a big part of it. But I think fundamentally the role that bookstores have in our culture right now, if you're lucky enough to live near one, most people consider them to be a real magnet for their cultural life, you know, where you can go in, you can talk to the booksellers, you can see what's new on the tables. I mean, I think that's a very powerful thing. Um, and that will certainly return to the forefront. And I think in the meantime, some bookstores have done a really, really good job in social media in terms of extending that conversation and, you know, making it really clear to people that they're the local business in the community that is bringing these writers in, that is bringing these books in, and that wants to have a relationship with the people around them. So yeah, they're like an amazing, amazing, amazing feature of our society, which is, you know, in some ways uniquely American. And that they are as powerful as many review outlets at this point. Do you think in terms of innovation that the innovators where publishers would look at new ideas of places to have books? Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, people want to gather like life is an experience. I just read this morning, actually, about a new bookstore that is inspired by Lucian Freud and is going to have a wine bar in it that's opening in an apartment building, I think, in Atlanta. And I don't know any more about it than that, but I thought, wow, I would love to live in that apartment building. I think that, yeah, innovative concepts are always interesting and they always attract people. I think people love to combine the idea of sharing a meal and also enhancing the life of the mind. I think that there's something really potent and really incredible when you get together with friends and you talk about, you know, the big questions in life that literature tries to answer. And there's even some bookstores that have been opened by independent publishers. You know, there's one in Columbus, Ohio, that $2 Radio, which is a great small press that I've worked with, has opened. And Third Man Books in Nashville, which is an offshoot of Third Man Records, which I've also worked with, you know, they have a store and recording studio. And so I think that a lot of publishers are also thinking about establishing these spaces themselves, which is interesting as well. But yeah, no, I love to go to different bookstores. I love to visit a place in person. Sometimes I find it challenging to try and plan things from a distance. But the main reason that I'm so willing to travel and go to different places is that, you know, I don't want to get caught up in the limiting belief that New York and publishing here is the center of the world, because I don't believe that at all. So I think a lot of times if you have a marketing conversation and you're in the city, you can really have a a sort of view that you're going to do what works here and you're going to export it out. But the reality is, it's like most cities don't have 12 or 15 super vibrant independent bookstores. You know, there aren't 50 editors that will come to a party. So, you know, we're very spoiled in a lot of ways uh, with the way that we're able to work here. And it's certainly the reason that I live here because it makes my work possible. But at the same time, I'm really, really interested in other approaches and other ways that people are dynamic in their own communities. Yeah, I'm always looking for new ways to imagine an evening. What about literary prizes and awards? At least when you look at something like the Academy Awards, it certainly shines a light on a lot of films, films that some of us might not see in the run-up to the actual ceremony. 
And you look at something like the Booker Prize, people do look at the, mm-hmm. the short list and they do read those novels. Should we have more events like this that put attention on a number of books, Lauren? Is that helpful or not? I think prizes are really great in that they help penetrate the broader consciousness of the public. They're one of the paths that people see to success in publishing now. Another one is to have a book adapted to become a TV show or a movie. Um, there's a publisher I'm working with right now that's really interested, uh, interesting in that regard. They're called Turner Publishing. They're based in Nashville and they're publishing a book that I'm working on called The Hive by Melissa Schools Young next month. And the imprint that she's on, Key Light Books, is just books that they publish that they think that they can get optioned for film. And so they often sell the film option before the book has even been published. So I think that anything that people can do to kind of widen the interest is fundamentally a good thing. You know, I worked with the Wyndham Campbell Prizes for many years to help kind of establish them in the literary and publishing culture. And one of the things that I like about them is that it's really agnostic in terms of the publisher. It's not a prize for being a bestseller. It often has nothing to do with the book entirely. Having published a book is the criteria for being considered, but it's judged in secret. And it often rewards people for either a body of work that they've already achieved or a promise that hasn't yet been realized. So I think that those kinds of things can be an amazing calling card. And I'm actually working with a writer who was the recipient of a Wyndham Campbell Prize very early in the program. I think the first or second year, right when I started working with them, Kia Corthran won it for drama for her playwriting and then went on to publish a novel with Seven Stories Press, which won the Center for Fiction debut novel prize. And now she has a new book coming out called Moon and the Mars in August. Having those prizes to put in the subject of an email absolutely gets the attention of editors because it helps kind of people who maybe are not familiar with the writer or the publisher or the book to, you know, have some kind of frame of mind to interpret the work. That it, that it does stand out in some way. So yeah, prizes are great. I really like them. I don't get caught up in the vanity of it. I've been involved in the judging of enough of them to know that they all have their logic, they all have their rationale and life is long. But um, yeah, if a writer gets one, I will certainly make use of it. Is this putting a pressure on some writers though? If it's difficult as a writer to make a living if you're working in fiction and then you think, well, I'm not just writing what I feel. I'm writing for different platforms. I'm writing this because I'm thinking about it becoming a Netflix series. Or um, What do people think about that? I mean, from my perspective, like when writers were writing for magazines that publish short fiction every week in Life magazine and 2 million people read, you know, The Old Man and the Sea, that was a pretty great situation when writers could live off of like their short fiction. And then obviously people like F. Scott Fitzgerald going to Hollywood and taking that, you know, acumen for writing a really well-paced story to Hollywood and, and working on that. So, I mean, I think that's something that has always been the case. If you look at the kind of contemporary novel, it's really based on, you know, French writers writing these serialized stories for newspapers where the public couldn't get enough and then eventually publishing them all together, making these huge novels that we now see as like this sort of form that was really just, you know, the product of its time and place. So for me, like, I don't see it as like a 
oh, you know, this person's just writing this for that. But I do feel that uh, it has really, you know, given a lot of people a new kind of hope that they can reach a really big audience with a book that becomes a show. Because that is one of the few ways, like, you know, I was trained and grew up in an age of mass media. And I think for someone who experiences the world now, it's very different. You know, it's much more niche. There can be, um, you know, podcasts and programs that have many, many followers and are very influential, but are not listened by the world at large. So, you know, in some ways, it's very comforting to find people who share exactly your perspective and want to talk about exactly what you want to talk about. But at the same time, it can be tough to kind of get a sense of what, you know, the broader kind of public is into. So I think people are still able to say like, well, if I can get a show, if I can get a screenplay, if I can get this option, you know, I've got a shot at giving this book a life. And I think that's really the bottom line for most people is to really think like, how can I put this piece of art, this story out into the world and, and give it legs, you know, so that people can find it. Do you find that there's much more attention on poetry now with Amanda Borman's performance at the inauguration, her book is on on the bestseller list, that people are thinking a little bit more about poetry than they did. Perhaps it has a wider readership. Yeah, I mean, that was thrilling. And I was in a Rizzoli bookstore on Broadway the other day, and they had a big stack of the inaugural poem right by the register. And I remember thinking like, this is fantastic. You know, it's thrilling. I think poetry is a a form that is always right for the moment. Like we always have short attention spans and we always want to be given something that complicates the present moment while it also consoles. And I think only a poem can do that. It's just that it's hard to come across poetry in our daily lives. You know, if you're in New York, we're very lucky to have poetry in the subways, which a friend of mine selects through the Poetry Society of America. I think that it can be a little bit harder to find poetry if you're not a very serious reader of it. But I am seeing more, you know, books of poetry make it into the world. There's this kind of sense that people just want to read a story that interests them. They don't feel like they need to be necessarily a poet themselves or a scholar of it. And I find that really refreshing. You know, I worked with a writer earlier this year, Jasmine Kerr. You know, she got her start in spoken word and on Instagram, you know, and she's a very successful poet who found her community uh, and her audience online and then went into publishing. So uh, yeah, I think poetry, it's all around us. And I, I love that about it. And yeah, I think that independent publishers have always been very sort of faithful and putting out poets consistently. So there's a nice body of work. But again, like to me, it always goes back to what I think about all day, which is, you know, what is the means of discovery? How do you get the books in front of people? How do we invite a broader readership into this brightly lit room. What about those publishers who are looking at reissuing classics or, you know, Library of America, uh, Bridget Hughes at a public space, publishing Betty Howland? Is that important, Lauren? Is that something that see playing a role now? Yeah, I mean, it's really important. I mean, I think a lot of people have heard the story, but, you know, are often surprised to learn that like some writers were sort of revived decades after their death and kind of brought into the spotlight because we now see them as these kind of pillars of literature or art. Uh, And a lot of that comes out of feminist scholarship in the 1970s, because the reality is 
you know, we live in a societal moment where I think that we have a broad enough understanding of history to see that many people were deliberately written out of it or they weren't given opportunities in their contemporary time. Yeah, we're able now to go back and to reissue books and to take another look and to really think about you know, does this book speak to me now? Does this book have an audience? Is there something that it says that is resonant, that, you know, that comes across time? I just, a couple of weeks ago, was listening to an audiobook of a biography of a food writer who was from London and sort of was outside the mainstream all of her life and ended up living in Greece and Tuscany and Southern Italy and and was really very iconoclastic about her approach to publishing. And so her name is Patience Gray and, and she's super interesting. And anyway, there was a guy that went to visit her that was mentioned as one line in the book. And for whatever reason, I wrote it down and I went to go look it up. And it turns out he wrote a three volume autobiographical novel about his life in the Neapolitan aristocracy between the wars. And it's like nothing I've ever read. I read all three books in a weekend. And to me, it was quite shocking uh, that that book isn't really well known, you know, for certainly, you know, it's a niche audience because as I'm sure we've discussed before, like I think only 3% of books in the United States are translated. You know, we have a very, very, very low rate of even bringing a literature and translation into the U.S., much less having it be read. Yeah, I think there's always a book that I come across where I think like, wow, I'm amazed that this isn't more widely read, but absolutely, there are very passionate people working in reissues. And it's everywhere from like the New York Review of Books has its classics line. Bridget's doing amazing things at a public space, which is now a full-fledged publisher as well as a magazine. And yeah, there's like always this sort of incredible sense that these stories have more in them. Absolutely. I thought that when I was at the Alice Neal exhibition at the Met this week, and, and there's such extraordinary paintings, but it's really her life. And I thought, oh, you know, I have started looking at what's been written and what she might have written because it's it's the words that and the stories that you really interested in beyond the paintings. Yeah. And I mean the mechanics of fame and celebrity are very interesting. Like sometimes when I'll read a biography you know, the person like just didn't, wasn't interested in press coverage that often happens, or sometimes their executor has a reason they want to suppress some aspect of their work or is just not proactive in giving access to the work to scholars. I mean, that's its own kind of world. Yeah, no, I really, really love reissues and I'm always really sensitive and interested when I see a press putting older books out because I do think that there's a kind of sort of beautiful justice in saying that, you know, maybe nobody remembers this book but me, but I'm confident that a lot of people would care about it. And so I always want to support that when I come across it. I have no idea, Lauren, about creative writing classes and programs at universities, but it seems that most universities now have creative writing programs. So at least there's an emphasis on writing. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I think, you know, one of the funny statistics that you will come across pretty quickly is that a great many people in the United States feel that they could write a book, far fewer actually read them. I think mm-hmm. that the idea of writing as a as a professionalized skill and like, you know, talent as a writer. And and I separate those two things. I don't think you need a degree to publish. And I think you need a degree in some instances to teach. And that is often the goal of people in many of those programs, you know, or they want time to write. 
But for me, like, yeah, reading has always been just like a source of pure pleasure. So yeah, there are more writers, but there are always writers, you know, that is kind of, um, I think in some ways, fundamentally the human condition, you know, that desire uh, to put it on paper and show it to somebody. Well, Lauren, this has really been delightful and you just make me want to end this conversation, just walk over to a chair and spend the the rest of the afternoon reading, (laughs) Um, which I wish I had more time to do that we all. Well, I think one of the things that readers can do, you know, besides obviously follow your passions is get to know a few presses that interest you. You know, a lot of presses these days have subscription programs. A lot of them are really interested with connecting with people on social media. So just like three off the top of my head that listeners to this podcast can check out would be Turtle Point Press, which is um, a really interesting New York-based small press. I'm on their board of advisors, but they have a subscribers club where people can get uh, early copies of the books as they're published, often signed by the author and with other little benefits as well. Um, And then I'm working with a couple of international presses, House of Anansi Press, which is based in Toronto, is publishing some of their books increasingly in the U.S. And they're really interesting. You know, when I came back from Italy, I was really suddenly aware in a way that I had never been in my previous 40 years living in America, you know, how little I read in terms of writers who were publishing in countries directly adjacent to ours. And so it was a real kind of initiative for me to learn more about the Canadian publishing scene. I worked on a fantastic festival a couple of years ago that's run by a magazine in Chicago called Make, and it's called Lit and Lose. And it is a Spanish and English language literary festival that happens first in Chicago and then in Mexico City. And it's very involved with independent publishers in both countries. And it's absolutely worth seeking out. So I think that, you know, that's a great place to start. And I think also Sandorf Passage, which I'm working with, they just launched with a mandate to start with books that are translated primarily. There's uh, one or two that are originally in English, but it's work from the former Yugoslavia. So again, like you can really travel right now without leaving your house. And it's because Mm -hmm. of you know, the bold choices that independent publishers make and the way that they're willing to pursue their visions, then I think that is really exciting. So yeah, it sustains me too. I will also spend the rest of the afternoon reading, I think. But you know, you you mentioned book festivals and I guess, Lauren, because we have been at home for a year, I sort of forgotten about book festivals. I would always go to the Brooklyn Festival It's a grand bookstore where you walk around and you meet the publishers. It really gives you a good sense of who's publishing what. And, you know, it's wonderful. I mean, that is a really famous one that's very well known for its independent publishing presence. You know, they really, Mm. um, I mean, understandably, Brooklyn is the heart of many independent publishing ventures, but it's also something people come into the city for. I don't know if they'll be virtual or, you know, partially in person this year, if it can be outdoors, but a lot of festivals have gone online, you know, and they have the content and it is possible to participate in them. So I would definitely encourage people who are listening to connect. Like if there's a festival that you've enjoyed in the past, there's probably some aspect of it that's taking place this year. Like I've only heard of a few programs that have suspended entirely. I mean, you know, there's stuff out there. So yeah, I think for me, it's always about 
yeah, new stories, new voices, new perspectives, new ways of seeing the world. So yeah, festivals can be a wonderful place for those encounters. I just got used to going to these book lectures. I mean, you could go almost every evening, you know, and there would be a bookstore in Seattle or a bookstore in LA or, you know, it's wonderful. And just, or search your, an author you're interested in and there's a lecture and, and you can listen to it on YouTube. Yeah. But I mean, there's a lot too in the podcast world. Like there's some great literary podcasts I'm happy to recommend. Uh, There's one called Other People. It's hosted by Brad Listy. It's based in Los Angeles. And many of the authors that he interviews are writers who've been published on independent presses. And they have a book club as well. That's super interesting, dynamic, fun show that often has a personal dimension. Um, There's another one based in Boston called Writer's Bone, hosted by Daniel Ford. And, um, and some friends and the idea behind that one is it's for anyone with a creative bone in their body. So they have people, you know, they can be songwriters, they can be screenwriters. There's lots and lots of different perspectives there. If you went to talks at the New York Public Library by Paul Holdengraber, he's now in Los Angeles and he has a podcast, I think every day on a station called Dub Lab. So, I mean, there's a lot out there. I, I think often we're sort of overwhelmed with kind of choice and possibilities. And, but I love listening to audiobooks while I work. I love listening to podcasts while I work. For me, the thing that I'm always trying to solve is, you know, what else is out there that I haven't heard of and how can I tell more people about it? That that partially comes, I think, from living in New York, doesn't it, Lauren? I think I've always been a curious person. I, for me, like the things that everyone else likes are, are seldom interesting. I always want to find the things that are the kind of the undiscovered gems are the ones for me. Yes, absolutely. Well, I hope we can do this again, Lawrence, so that you can share with us some of the books that you're working on, because I always want to read them and, and the events and things that you're planning or where you're speaking. So. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, things in a way feel like they're being reborn and, and we'll see what we get with this new version. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you, Lauren. It's really been wonderful. All right. It's been lovely to join you. Thank you. Thank you. If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can connect with us through the short fuse podcast at gmail.com. You can support us through Patreon. You can find us on Spotify and on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join us next time when we engage, explore, and ask questions. Mm-hmm.